This podcast series is sponsored by GSK. Dr. Doreen Siri and Dr. Matthew Mintz are healthcare providers who have been paid by GSK to produce this podcast. The information in this podcast series is intended to support disease state education and is considered non-promotional. Hello and welcome to the third of three podcasts on severe asthma. This third podcast is on the importance of referral of patients with severe asthma to a specialist. In the first and second podcast of this series, we discuss the importance of eosinophils in severe asthma and how common the eosinophilic phenotype was and how it portended a worse prognosis. My name is Tom Corbridge. I'm a pulmonologist at Northwestern University and a U.S. Medical Affairs Lead at GlaxoSmithKline. And I am delighted to be joined by a colleague and allergist, Dr. Doreen Siri. Doreen is CEO and CMO of Midwest Allergy, Sinus, and Asthma. She is also Medical Director of Sneeze, Wheeze, and Itch Associates, uh, which is a clinical research center. Doreen, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me to be here today. I'm excited to speak to you about eosinophilic asthma. So Doreen, we're gonna talk about the importance of referral to a specialist, but let's start by just talking first again about the association between blood eosinophil counts and the risk of exacerbations uh, as we launch into our discussion. I think we've uh, recapitulated that uh, on some previous podcasts about the importance of recognizing uh, severe eosinophilic asthma and that those with the eosinophilic phenotype really are at risk for a lot of problems. I think we can point to the study that we're both familiar with. Uh, it was a study uh, in the United Kingdom involving about 130,000 primary care patients with asthma. Um, and it looked at the relationship between eosinophil count and the risk of exacerbation and asthma control. A really interesting study. And if we recall that for every um, 100 points, um, patients starting at zero to 100 of eosinophil counts, and then 100 to 200, and then 200 to 300, et cetera, for every decile that you went up or uh, you know 100 points that you went up, that these patients were at um, linearly increased risk of asthma exacerbations, beta agonist use, hospital admissions related to asthma, certainly corticosteroid use um, and antibiotic prescriptions. And it really was a very, very compelling study um, in looking at that. Um, thinking about our discussions in the past regarding eosinophils being a biomarker, but also as an effector agent of, you know, inflammatory immune system. I think from we, when we think of both of those perspectives, we can see how the eosinophils are now, during an exacerbation, setting up this vicious cycle of inflammation, um, the mucus production, perhaps um, increasing the risk of an infection during that process, um, and certainly um, remodeling and leading to loss of lung function. So certainly when we think about recurrent exacerbations. The goal and the reason, you know, many, many um, companies are looking at this, um, many um, investigators are looking at this, is how do we reduce those exacerbations? And really when we target inflammation um, and reduce inflammation, that is how we do it. So the exacerbation, as you and I know, every single time we see a patient, when they come in, they're having exacerbation, we treat it, we calm it down. You wanna think about the risks of uh, modifying and reducing that risk of exacerbation 
in the future for that patient. Because we know that every single time that they have an exacerbation, they're losing about 30 milliliters of um, lung function. Yeah, we, we both know that, you know, over the age of 30, 35, everybody loses some lung function over time. It's just, you know, kind of like we get gray hairs and we get a few more wrinkles, but um, there's a normal loss of lung function over time. And then there's an accelerated loss of lung function over time. And interestingly enough, we've also looked at this um, from medical published data that those patients with severe eosinophilic asthma and those patients who are having recurrent exacerbations lose lung function at an accelerated rate compared to normal people and even other people with different lung diseases. So really, really important for us to, one, recognize the severe asthma patient. Number two, thinking about the pathophysiology. Number three, thinking about exacerbations that go along with these specific patients. And then how do we reduce those exacerbations? I like to also think about you know sinus patients. I know, Tom, that you may not think about the sinuses or treat the sinuses that much um, in terms of those patients. But when I see them as an allergist immunologist, you know, this is a whole airway. It starts from the top down, from the um, nasal um, mucosa, the sinuses, all the way down to the lungs. And when we think about eosinophils being in that space, that many times when we look at severe eosinophil gas patients, they have a tendency to have a high proportion of them that have chronic sinus disease and nasal polyps as well. Doreen, so well said. And I would also recognize, of course, that these patients having recurrent exacerbations are exposed to the adverse effects of systemic corticosteroids. And while systemic steroids are effective in managing these exacerbations, they have a whole host of adverse effects. And we can, of course, list those changes in mood and sleep and uh, changes in bone density, weight change, sepsis, cataracts, etc. We hope we know that there are a whole host of steroid side effects. And these have been, of course, well recognized with the daily use of corticosteroids. Uh, but the emerging data suggests that the cumulative exposure particularly puts patients at high risk of systemic effects. Data have shown that doses as low as 0.5 to less than one gram of cumulative exposure may increase the lifetime side effects uh, associated with systemic steroids. And we also know that even bursts of oral corticosteroids can be dangerous to patients. So there's, a, of course, a linkage between these exacerbation-prone patients and their exposure to corticosteroids. And this really, I think, forms the foundation for patients who are being seen in primary care settings to consider referral to a specialist. And so let me ask you about that specifically. What what are the drivers of those uh, referrals, would you say, if you're thinking of it from a primary care perspective? I am. Uh, I, when I first heard about these numbers that you're talking about, I was astounded. I was like, "Wow!" Because because you know, you and I maybe pulmonologists a little bit more aggressive on steroids than the allergists, but that didn't seem like there was a lot. I mean, we're talking about this emerging science, right? And um, and us, of course, in this era of corticosteroid stewardship, antibiotic stewardship. But um, it was a surprising number because you know we've all been there. We were all primary care doctors first before we became specialists. And you you know the numbers you're talking about four lifetime births. I mean, for an average patient who's 50 or 60, that didn't seem like a whole lot. And you also think about the fact that they may be getting lifetime bursts of corticosteroids for other reasons, right? not just asthma, but certainly four lifetime births 
increasing markedly a lot of these side effects and risks of corticosteroids. So I think when the primary care uh, physician um, is looking at this patient um, from a global perspective, you know, especially if it's a, a severe asthma patient, a synthetic asthma patient, and they're looking at them thinking about, you know, hey, you know, this patient had exacerbation two years ago, and then this year they've had two, and, you know, maybe a few years ago they had another. That's already four. That seems to be um, pretty common, I think, in a primary care setting, right? So, um, so in that case, I think that um, if we think about the fact also on top of that, they have um, a high burden of uh, inhaled corticosteroids. And though we think, of course, inhaled topical corticosteroids being far safer than systemic, if the patient is on a high dose inhaled corticosteroid, which, you know, most primary care doctors are great at doing, um, they know how to do step-up care. Um, they uh, already are managing the patients with the best tools they have. And now the patient on high-dose ICS perhaps with an additional controller, such as a long-acting beta agonist, perhaps additional controllers on top of that, um, whether it's methyl xanthines, um, leukotriene antagonists, and now requiring oral corticosteroids. Those medications are great medications, and they have kind of tipped over the cup. They spilled over the cup and needed another or oral corticosteroid burst. Or even patients who alone are on high-dose inhaled corticosteroids without other controls, but still having problems. Or perhaps those patients that are more of the um, turnstile patient where they come in, they get a burst, um, perhaps they're you know, um, uh, doing okay for a few months, they come in, they get another burst. Um, and we think of them as revolving or you know, through, the, through the revolving door coming in several times a year. Those patients really need to be considered uh, for referral to an allergist or pulmonologist because what's underlying all that um, the, the exacerbation, of course, is inflammation, and the majority of times those patients are eosinophil patients. Yeah, I think it's those recurrent exacerbations, the exposure to systemic steroids in primary care settings that really should lead to a referral to a specialist. And that requires, you know, that we all do our diligence in identifying that those exacerbations are happening, that the patients are receiving bursts of corticosteroids. And when you do your diligence and you identify that that's happening in clinical care, that those are the patients that I think would benefit from referral to an allergist or a pulmonologist. And what you know specialists will be doing in this context of course will be confirming the diagnosis considering maybe an expanded differential diagnosis uh, phenotyping these patients and of course we've talked about the blood eosinophil as one of the cornerstones of phenotyping patients with severe asthma and then considering strategies that could decrease exacerbations and decrease exposure to oral corticosteroids and really first and foremost I think in this regard would be specialist consideration of the use of advanced therapies with biologics which really are uh, fundamental in uh, decreasing exacerbations in OCS exposure. So, so tell me about what you do when you are uh, seeing a patient referred to primary care. What are the benefits you are providing from an allergist perspective? Thank you so much for that question. Um, I really feel that uh, it uh, is in uh, the best interest of, you know, the complicated patient um, for us to, you know, lend a helping hand to our primary care colleagues because we have the time and this is, you know, our purpose is to get the patient in, globally look at them, consider all the other medications they're on, 
look at their sinuses, look at their lungs, um, think about you know um, the pathophysiology and try to personalize and customize that care specific to them so we can get them where they need to be. That may include you know education about toxins, allergens, pollutants. That may include uh, a discussion about you know inhaler use, um, how to use them correctly, how to monitor the patient's signs and symptoms at home, developing an action plan for those patients so they know when to seek help and when it may be okay and what medications to use at home. Um, and certainly to think about uh, maximizing their care with um, what we can, um, and also um, if they are beyond um, that usual standard of care treatment to select um, a therapy for them um, or to talk about shared decision-making in um, talking about some of those advanced therapies such as biologics. So I think we can offer a lot to the primary care physician, including some of the technologies we have, not just CBC with differential like primary care doctors have access to, but also some other diagnostics such as um, fractional exhaled nitric oxide following their pulmonary function test, which is you know uh, certainly something that should be done every single year by um, NHLBI guidelines, um, GINA guidelines, and certainly uh, other things um, uh, such as imaging, um, impulse oscillometry, et cetera. I think that we offer a lot to see if we can get that patient to preserve lung function, to reduce exacerbations, improve their quality of life, and to um, use judicious um, therapies in order to uh, maximize their care. And also, Doreen, I think jumping off of something you said previously about the concurrence of comorbidities such as nasal polyps, the specialist has the ability to look at patients through the lens of comorbidities and maybe identify additional areas that can be treated towards better outcomes. So again, you know, a, a push to refer appropriate patients not doing well for specialty assessment and management. Well, Doreen, I want to thank you for joining me for this podcast on the importance of referral. I also want to just highlight the important points of this podcast series where we talked about the importance of severe asthma in patients with uncontrolled severe asthma having an eosinophilic phenotype and the importance of identifying that eosinophilic phenotype with a blood test, how that portends a worse prognosis how many of these patients remain uncontrolled with exacerbations and exposure to oral corticosteroids, and the importance of considering these patients for referral to a specialist for best outcomes. Doreen, thank you again for your expertise and participation. Uh, it's a pleasure, and thank you all for listening.